Okay, so we're going to carry on with our <coughs> series about the, <coughs> in, in the respect of the self-revelation of God in Scripture. Just to remind you, what we're trying to do is to pick out the big um, themes of, of Scripture which are laid out in these foundational chapters of the Bible at the beginning. The aim is to work through Bible, but obviously we won't be spending so much time in every book as I've spent in, in these chapters, but that just shows how important these early chapters are, but we struggle to get out of them, struggle to get out of them, but we have now managed to get out of chapter 3 and we're into chapter 4, um, well really the next section that I want to concentrate on is chapter 4. Um, to chapter 6 and <clears throat> verse 6 and that's really the period in scripture where God re reveals himself in the period from the fall to the time of Noah and Noah's flood, that interim period between the fall and Noah's flood, the flood. And this is a very interesting piece of scripture, um, and I'm going to read um, some of it now. We're going to miss out chapter 5, because we're going to talk about that next time. So we're going to read chapter 4, and a small section of chapter 6. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain, <coughs> and Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. 
And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face I shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Nirad, and Nirad begat Mehujel, and Muhajel begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and, as, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamath. And Lamech said, Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son. And he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 5 we're going to read next time. It's the... List really, it's not really a genealogy, it's a, it's a list, a dynastic list of the heads of um, families of the line of Seth, which is the line of the seed of the woman, the line of redemption. And then we come to chapter 6. And it came to pass. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them, wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, 
and they bare children to them. The same began, became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. In those last two verses, I won't be speaking on much this evening, but will be next time. So, what is God saying to us? One of the big things that God is saying to us in this period between the fall and leading up to the flood, the great flood. I was thinking that. Um, I haven't read it for a long time, a long time, but there's a book on my shelf from Charles Dickens called A Tale of Two Cities. And that would be a fair description of these chapters. Um, because it is a story of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. It's the story of how God preserved the seed of the woman, the redemptive line, through this pre-flood, or um, it's known as the pre-Diluvian period, this time between the fall and the flood. And it's a story of how God preserved the remnant, the seed of the woman, in this period. And God, we know from Scripture, is building a city. It's called the eternal city of the great king, also known as the new creation of God. And at the end of time, at the end of days, this city of God, called the New Jerusalem, um, in an apocalyptic event, we're told in Revelation 21, will come down from heaven. And that is really another way of describing the new heavens and the new earth. <coughs> it is one analogy the scripture uses is it is the city of God, the new creation. And the story of the Bible is really that the the stones or the bricks, if you like, that make up that city are you and I. We are the living stones of that eternal city. And it's made up of you and me. It's made up of the redeemed saints of the Lord all over the world. And of all those who are already in glory, who are with the Lord. And so we read of the city of God and we see the beginnings of it right here from the first conversion which we spoke about last time how Adam and Eve put faith in God's promise that man would live and Adam called his wife Eve life and Eve put her faith in the promise and they were the first stones if you like in this new city of God but we also read in these chapters of 
the city of man. And I want to talk a bit about that. It becomes apostate, and over time, it gets worse and worse, and it becomes bestial, and it culminates in Babylon, the antithesis of the city of God. And Revelation talks about the great Babylon, that great whore, which is a symbolic <coughs> city-type metaphor for the apostate, wicked, antichrist spirit that uh, becomes part and parcel of the work, building of man's city. And it's not going to be possible to cover all the truth in, in, in these chapters. Um, we'd be here for, for a long time. But I want to examine with you briefly, hopefully, it's going to have to be brief, this really condensed survey of the history of the world from the fall into the flood. And I'm going to do so under two headings, the city of man and the city of God, the of two cities, but we're not going to be able to do the city of God tonight, we'll do that next time. So tonight I'm just going to concentrate on what these verses that we read say about the city of man. We must remember, of course, that although this period is covered in, in a very short narrative. We, we shouldn't read into that, that it was a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, the genealogy, if you like, in chapter 5 is almost certainly selective. <coughs> and there may be hundreds, some, some scholars say, maybe thousands of years between these different dynastic heads of families that are outlined in chapter 5. And it's only one line, it's only the line of Seth. So we really have no idea what period of time we're talking about. But I believe that it was a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's comfort in that. And the Apostle Peter picks up on this in his writings. Um, the Apostle Peter, if you turn to, to 2 Peter, in chapter 2, uh, verse 5, before we come to that minute, the Apostle Peter refers to this, pe this period that we're talking about as the old world, because we mustn't forget that the world that we're reading of here in chapters 4 to 6 is not this world, it's the old world, that world no longer exists. It was destroyed in a flood. So that there is the old world and there is this world. And the Apostle Peter um, presents that old world in verse 5. He says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness, and so on. So Peter presents um, 
this period of time as a, as a world in all of itself with its own beginning, middle and ending. In other words, it has its own eschatology, if you like. We talk about the eschatology of this world where there is a promise of judgment, a, 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 a day of judgment, a, a final and termination of this world and all the prophecies that lead up to it. The same thing happened, not exactly the same, but in principle exactly the same thing happened in the old world. It had its own story, its own eschatology. And God, what God promised, the judgment that God promised came to fulfilment. And in one in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, Peter compares this long period of time in the old world with the tendency of people in this world to mock Christians and say, well, it's taking an awful long time, this second coming, isn't it? And one of the reasons I think this old world, this period of time that we're talking about, was a very long period of time, is that Peter uses that as an argument to say, well, just as God kept his promise in the old world, just as God kept to his plan, his eschatology in the old world, so he will in this world. So, let me read 2 Peter chapter 3 just to, just to confirm what I'm saying. Verse 3 of, of chapter 3 is talking about how in the last days there will be scoffers. We get plenty of that, don't we? And one of the things that the scoffers were saying is in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And he's answering, For this they willingly are ignorant of, mm -hmm. that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, and that's the period of time we're talking about, in these, these verses in Genesis was the world that then was being overflowed with water perished but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word it's the same word that delivered the flood is the same word that will deliver fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So he uses, I believe, uh, it seems very clear to me, that he is intimating that this period of time, Genesis 4 to uh, 6, verse 6, was no short period of time. It was a whole world of its own. It was the world that then was. In the old world. 
<clears throat> so the whole um, force of his argument was that the eschaton will take place. And that's probably one of the great applications of these of these verses, of these chapters leading up to the flood, that God has set a day of judgment and century, centuries may pass. You don't know what stage we're in in the, in the, in the church. Some, some of our some people say we're still in the early church period. Don't know. But the point is, is that God has set a day and that day will come. So the second thing I want to say is that within this old world, the world that then was, the people of God, just like we today, had to exist alongside a world culture which was produced according to the principle of common grace, which we spoke about last week. I think it was last week. Um, and so we've got two things going on in these, in these chapters. We've got the principle of common grace being worked out. And I'll come on to that in a second. Remember what we said last time, this common grace is, is, are things which God has given to all men, all men, all women, they're not sinful in themselves. They're what we might call non-holy or secular. They're not holy in the sense that they will they, they will not lack, they will not last, they will not enter into the new creation, neither are they unholy. And we'll go on to see that in a second. We've got that going on, but we've also got a rapid deterioration of man into sin. The things that we read of in these chapters are a big step up, or I should say a big step down, I suppose, from the sin of Adam and Eve. They took, an apple, they took some fruit off a tree. There's a whole lot worse going on in these chapters as we'll come on to sin. And we as Christians, and these as and, and, and the line of Seth, who were the line of the redeemed people, um, they had to live alongside a world, a world culture that God graciously gave common gifts, common grace gifts to, but which they misused and which they turned into sinful uh, things. We read of Cain um, being cursed for the murder of Abel and driven out into the land of Nod in chapter 4, verse 16. The first murder that is recorded. Um, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, or the land of Nod. Nod translates as the land of wandering. He's in the wilderness, he's in the land of wandering, he's no longer home, he's in exile. And we read that he had a son called Enoch and that he built a city 
and he named the city after his son, Enoch. And this is the first example of this principle of common grace being worked out because I don't believe that the institution of the city in and of itself was unholy. Some people say it was, but I believe it was a common grace blessing that man, that man makes it a wicked thing. But in and of itself, the building of a city was not a sinful thing. And nor were all the other common grace activities that we read of. Um, we read of um, Cain and his children and his descendants achieving great things. Um, we read of Jubal uh, developing um, well really this is in verse 21 of chapter 4 um, sorry not verse 21 verse 20 of, of chapter 4 um, Jabal I'm saying Jubal I meant to say Jabal he was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. Well cattle was, was really the the, um, the sterling or the, or the currency of, of the ancient Near East. People traded in cattle. And so he developed, you could say, that the, the financial system that people in, in that common grace world could trade and and create businesses and earn wealth. And so he he developed, as it were, this nomadic trade in, in cattle. And then there's Jubal in verse 21, who developed musical instruments. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all, as such as handle the harp and organ. So there there was culture. Um, there was music. The harp and the organ could be heard. I don't believe that that was in and of itself sinful or unholy. Neither was it holy. It was under this umbrella, if you like, of common grace blessings. And then we read of <coughs> Tubal Cain. Um, in, in verse 22 Tubal Cain an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron so he was the first blacksmith if you like and he invented tools which were vital for, for the advancement the cultural advancement the technological advancement of, of early man it was a tremendous leap forward to creation of, uh, of, of metal tools. And so none of these activities are condemned. There's no criticism here of any of these things. They're common grace blessings. A man develops the city and all this culture and technology but as time goes by, what happens 
as that these things become a manifestation. They're, they're twisted, they're perverted, mm-hmm. and they become a manifestation of man's rebellion against God. And it results in judgment by water. That old world, the world that then was, ends in the flood, the great flood of judgment. This city, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm using the phrase city, not just in, in terms of the, the city that came built, but as a symbol of, of the work of man, uh, is a common grace temporary city. It's not the city of God, it won't enter into the new creation, it doesn't produce salvation for anyone. But nonetheless, it's a blessing. From God, human culture, the ability to carry on living, to carry on marrying, from people to be able to work and live and survive, and, and to survive the common curse that God placed upon man because of sin. God allowed men to gather together, to pool resources, and to survive. Man would not be abandoned to chaos. He wouldn't. He would be able to find shelter in the land of Nod, in the land of wandering. And the rationale for the city is recorded in Genesis 4, verse 15, where God responds to Cain's complaint. Cain complained that the curse that God had placed upon him for killing his brother was impossible to endure. The Lord said it to him. And the Lord responded by saying to Cain, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and so on. He didn't believe that he could survive without some law, without some order. And God responds by correcting Cain's misapprehension and false assumption that man would not have any um, justice or formal judicial system. There would be a form of divinely administered justice among men. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. God was going to establish a judicial office to execute divine retribution. And as history developed, and I believe quite early on in the city structure, this was achieved through human agents, through what we might call the first human state. The authority structure, maybe the heads of families, the senior families of the city. When we say city, we mustn't imagine New York, I don't suppose. We must imagine a, a simple gathering of a settlement 
in some boundary where people live together in this howling wilderness of the land of Nod, in exile from God, and they and they clung together and they, they they got through life with God's common grace blessings, but they were still being punished. And but one of the common grace blessings was that there would be justice, mm. that you could live. Um, there's nothing worse than anarchy. Mm. And scripture identifies the state's main function as the execution of God's wrath and punishment on evildoers. Romans 13, 3 and 4 says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a avenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Of course that's a much later development, but in principle this is what happens right here in this first city and the, the other cities that were developed. God promised that there would be vengeance for murder, there would be some kind of justice and, and order that man could live. And why was he doing this? Well, we went through this last time. So that the gospel could progress, so that the seed of the woman could develop and that Christ could come because without common grace order then that could not happen. There would be no life. And so this word from God to Cain promising him protection is the prelude. The next thing that happens is the beginning of the first city um, where Cain builds a city and names it after his son Enoch. And so it seems to me quite clear that this judicial promise to God is the rationale, it's like the city charter if you like. It's the uh, raison d'etre, if you like, of the, of the city. This is the purpose of this common grace, Christ city. Its main purpose is to provide order, justice, and so that people could, would not just be slaying each other at, at will. Um, and so, soon after God's promise to Cain, this settlement of families under a common jurisdiction existed in the land of Nod. And it's through this city, this first city, that the function of the, of the state, I and mean, that may be more of a, more of a word that uh, is over, overstating the case, but I can't think of another one. It's through this primitive state that the effects of the common curse, at least some of them, are mitigated. Mm. Marriage and work and families can carry on without fear of being 
slaughtered in the streets. Um, life becomes bearable as the city learns to control crime, as it gathers resources, maybe it fed the starving, hopefully. Um, it harnessed um, human talent, it tended to the sick, it buried the dead, well that's important, to bury the dead. Uh, and it was a way of defending against enemies. And such was the rudimentary city of man. It was legitimate, but it was common, it was secular, it wasn't unholy, but it was the city of man, not the city of God. And so the city in itself is a blessing. And yet in the biblical revelation, as we look at it in the, in the round, is presented as full of spiritual darkness and malignancy because man twists this common grace city into something evil. Um, what God gave as a blessing under his love for all man, man twisted and usurped. Well, perhaps I should say Satan in the first place usurped the city. He usurped world kingdoms and, and prostituted them into demonic service. And in the Apocalypse, or the book of Revelation, this city power is seen as a beast, it's called a beast, which turns on its citizens who refuse to take its mark, those citizens being true Christians. I promise you I'm not going to talk about the mark of the beast, my favourite subject in this church. But there is such a thing. This city is turned by Satan and his deception into a beast. Daniel 7 talk goes in the Belshazzar um, had the dream. And all, all the kingdoms of the world he describes as beasts. Man's enterprise, man's power. Man's city, the city of man, becomes bestial. It becomes an antichrist. <clears throat> it turns against the seed of the woman, the redeemed of the Lord. And we, we see this straight away. It's one of the things God is saying in the... It was warning, I think, really, in these, in these early chapters. The founder of the first city wasn't a nice guy. He was the murderer of the first martyr, you could say, the first Christian martyr was Abel, who gave his life as a sacrifice for the Lord, and Cain slew him. And it wasn't over some brotherly disagreement regarding, <clears throat> regarding something trivial. It was murder... Good, I could, that could be a good title for an Agatha Christian. It, it was murder at the altar. It was a religious quarrel. It was a persecution. And Abel slew him because God had showed how, hip, how hypocritical Cain's offering was and how holy and genuine Abel's offering 
And so the city is, it's not an easy thing. On the one hand it's legitimate, it's God's blessing. But Satan usurps the city of man and becomes bestial. And it turns against the seed of the woman. And that develops through scripture into ultimately the great Babylon, the great whore, who is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And so you and I, um, and all Christians, and the, and the seed of the woman in these chapters have this tension that we have to manage. On the one hand, the state or the city is ordained of God, it's God's common grace blessing to man. But it's, at least some of them, not all of them, but some, some of them become beast powers, they become bestial. Power goes to the head and often, even in our day, Christians are persecuted by the state. Legitimate, a legitimate power instituted by God and yet it turns against God's seed. And even in some countries tries to destroy the very name of God. And that's the tension that you and I need to well, we need to, we have to, have no choice but to, to live with. When we think of Romans 13 and how we're told to obey the higher powers, to pay our taxes, we sometimes forget that the government that he was talking about wasn't the Conservative Party or the Labour Party of Britain, which no matter what politics you have there, either party is a very benign a very benign government, in, in, relatively speaking. You know, we, we have freedom under any either party. I don't know if we're the Democrat Party yet, but I'm sure it would be the same. We would be amazing freedom in this country, relatively speaking. But that wasn't the case for the early church. Paul is saying to Christians, obey the state. And what was that state doing? It was killing them. And yet, he still says, obey the powers that are ordained of God. And that's the tension that we face. Well, we don't think we face it that much to be honest in this country, but some people, some Christians have to. To obey the powers that be, and yet, knowing that they are persecuting them. Of course, there is a limit to the degree to which we obey if, we're, if what we're told to do is to, will, it, will cause us to deny the faith, we, we are under duty to disobey. But on the whole, on the whole, generally speaking, the Christian, even under a persecuting state, is called upon to obey those higher powers. You see, the reality is that as we read these chapters, the cities are built in the line of Cain. There are no record of any cities being built in the line of Seth. 
There are no Christian cities. Everybody lives in the same city. They live in the common grace city. They live in the city of man. And there's no <clears throat> Sephite city where the Canaanites are not allowed in. There are no monasteries for the redeemed. The redeemed were expected to function in the city of man at the same time as being citizens of another heavenly city. And that's the situation you and I are in today. We are not to live in monasteries or withdraw from society. We're not to be like the, uh, I believe now they're called the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. I was used to call it the Plymouth Brethren, and I'll show you. We're not to live like that. Mm. We're not to withdraw from the world uh, and uh, separate ourselves from non-Christians. Of course, we don't engage in sinful activities, mm. but we're to, 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 to be friends where we can with non-Christians. We're to try to reach them. Mm. We, we live alongside them in the same city of man. We're not to this false kind of separation. The separation, biblical separation, is not physical separation from the world. It's a spiritual separation from the world. And so despite persecution from the state, we as Christians are to pay our taxes, respect the higher powers, and only disobey when our Christian witness is compromised or would be compromised. So that's the first thing that we should need to say. The other error that some Christians can go can go, go the other extreme and say that there is no difference between the city of God and the city of man. That the kingdom of God is everything. That everything is holy. I can understand the argument, but it's, it's false. This was what this was um, Abraham Kuyper's theology from the Dutch Reformed Church. He, he was a prime minister, actually, of, of Holland. He was a Dutch prime minister, so at least he was consistent um, in believing that politics and religion mix. But it's an error. It's an error. There is a difference between the city of man and the city of God. They cannot be merged. The city of man or world culture, secular cultures, is not redeemed. It, it, won't go, it will not save anyone. It will not last. It will not be retained in the new heavens and the new earth. The state and the church have to be separate. This is where the Puritans did go, unfortunately, quite wrong, or some of them, or many of them, I should say. The Puritan hope was that the city of man could be Christianized, and that there could be a Christian world, a Christian nation, Christian government, Christian law, where the first four laws of the Ten Commandments could be enforced. That you could, you could enforce through law people should have no other gods but God. 
that they will worship the Lord with all their heart and soul. You can't do it. But then that Christianity should be enforced. Um, if any country tried that, it was this country, England, Oliver Cromwell. Christianity compulsory. They had no choice. They had to go to church. <clears throat> Didn't work. Um, because he failed to understand the difference between the holy and the common. And we need to be very clear minded as Christians, and particularly as the church. As individual Christians, we we should, and I encourage you to to get involved in common grace activities if they are worthwhile. Sometimes with Christians, sometimes with non-Christians, depending on what it is. But just remember that isn't the work of the gospel. Politics is not the work of the gospel. We cannot enforce Christianity through law, through politics, through Christianising a nation. One of the problems the Puritans had in Christianising England was, well, which form of Christianity? The, 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 the people that suffered the most under Oliver Cromwell were the Baptists. They were terribly persecuted by the Presbyterians. So, you know, which brand, which denomination, there are all these things, it doesn't work at any level. And so, we have to maintain this understanding of common grace, this distinction between the city of man and the city of God. We need to remember as Christians, that we belong to a heavenly city. The city that wasn't originally meant to be Adam's reward for perfect obedience. But he fell and these blessings fled away. But in salvation, in redemption, this city is offered again to us. This time as the achievement, the crowning achievement of Christ on behalf of of his people. And this city is the termination, the end point of the story of God's revelation. It's the end point of redemption. It's already inaugurated in us in the church, but it's going to culminate, it's going to terminate in that heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The city of God. And that's the true theological or biblical understanding of us as the church. It's a city that's already been inaugurated. It's already a present reality. Um, it's a present reality amongst the hosts of the angels and the saints who have all already died and gone to heaven. And for those of us who are on earth, the redeemed, our hidden life and citizenship is already now in the city of God. 
the heavenly Jerusalem where Christ is the King. Hebrews 12.22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Not that you're going there, it is come, it's here. It's inaugurated. And it's towards this city that we, as pilgrims, are marching. That's our true city. But while we're here on this earth, we also have this relationship towards the city of man. But this heavenly city, although it's inaugurated, it's not fully visible yet. There's a sense in which it's here now, but there's also a sense in which it has to be revealed, it has to come down from heaven. In Revelation 21 we read of this very mysterious way of putting it, this heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And so in this, we could say this tale of two cities, the city of man is very present, it's very visible, it's very in our face. Um, at times it will try to persecute us, try to kill us as Christians. The story of the city of man is one of apostasy and rebellion against God. Um, it's the worship of false gods. And yet at the same time we're waiting for this city of heaven to come down. So as we sum up, <clears throat> the founding of the first city was was ominous for the people of God because it was founded by Cain, the slayer of evil. Um, it was an, an antichrist spirit right from the start. And that was evident in Cain naming the city, not after his God, as he should have done, but after his son. He named the city not after the one who, in whose image he had been made, he named the city after his image, the image of his son. And this lust for a name, this lust for a name, it was a boast against God and an attempt at autonomy against God. It's the spirit of idolatry. It's the blasphemy of the man of sin who Paul says will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The spirit of all that was there right at the beginning. And Cain's seed leads to Lamech in chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, Lamech took unto him two wives, Ada and Zillah, And then 23, Lamech said unto his wives, uh, I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. 24, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, Lamech 70 and sevenfold. So Cain's royal successes, <coughs> his dynasty, 
Um, we reached a point where King Lamech is on the scene. And he uses this kingly role to avenge the wrong, uh, to avenge wrong, just as God had appointed. But he manipulated his royal office. And his sins were far worse than Cain. This is, this is how sin develops. It gets worse and worse. Um, and despite the advances in farming and music and, and um, tool making and so on, he shows contempt for God's common grace. Mm. And he practices bigamy. Something Cain didn't do. He was married to one woman. There's a development of sin now. He's married to two women. He perverted the family by practicing bigamy. One of the sacred things God instituted was the human family. And Lamech's messing about with it already. He betrays the divine trust of his office by using his role as king as tyranny. For his own personal vengeance. He says, I have slain a man for my wounding and a young man to my hurt. But God didn't say that a man would be executed for giving someone a bruise or a scratch or, 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 or a clip around the ear. It was for murder. But Lamech executes people for a wound. He exceeds God's word by miles. He boasts of taking a life to avenge a wound. In verse 24, he says that Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. He, he judged that he was more competent than God to achieve vengeance. Maybe he used, <coughs> maybe he used that the newly invented sword from Tubal Cain's workshop to wreak his own vengeance. And he took matters into his own hands rather than leaving vengeance to be with the Lord. And yet his line was swept away in the flood. Mm. His sword didn't prevail. Mm. Um, I need to stop so I can wear it. And so the account of man is one of deteriorating sin. Things get worse and worse. And very briefly, just as I finish, it gets worse still. As we reach chapter 6, where we have the account of the sons of God, part of the dynasty of Cain, these sons of God continue the same sins of Lamech that he committed in his court. came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wise of all which they chose. So there are different interpretations of, the, of these verses. Some people say they're angels 
mixing with um, men. There's no real evidence anywhere in scripture that incorporeal angels can have intercourse with humans. So I reject that interpretation entirely. But I think it's probably best understood in terms of the sin of allowing. That now sin has developed even more, have gone from bigamy to now kings creating harems, taking multiple wives and having harems. And worse than that, calling themselves God, the sons of God. Blasphemously saying that they are God King, like the Roman emperors would centuries later. Not just bigamy, but harems, taking whoever they wanted, filling the earth with violence and blasphemous claims to deity. And that really is the story of the city of man. There's many things I need to say. I will perhaps uh, finish off more next time in terms of application of this. But just see where the city of man ends up. And we're only in the first early chapters of Genesis. It gets a lot worse yet. Sin has a habit of getting worse and worse. And I think these particular chapters are, are very instructive for us as Christians because our situation is far more like their situation than the situation of Israel. Israel didn't have this problem. Israel was a theocracy. It was a little picture, a symbolic picture of the new heaven and the new earth, of the redeemed of the Lord. They didn't have a common grace dynamic. They were told to have nothing to do with the nations around them. That isn't our situation. Our situation is far more like this. And you and I have to work with that tension between the common grace city of man and the city of God. But we're taught how to do it. We are to live as pilgrims, obedient with our eye on that city which we cannot see but to which we are headed by God's grace.